I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I am with Delith Jewell, who is the Plaid Cymru AM for South Wales East. Where are you from, Delith? So I'm from Caerphilly originally. Well, I was born in Caerphilly and grew up in Estrid Manach. And you went to school... I went to school... In, well, it was Cymremny School, so I was about to say in Bargoid, but when I was first in the school, it was on two different sites. Uh, one was in Abba Bargoid, and the other, the upper school was in Bargoid, and so the bus every day had to take us either up or down Abba Bargoid Hill. I don't know if you've ever driven near it, but oh, it's quite steep. And did you come from a Welsh-speaking background? A half and half, really. My father spoke Welsh, but my mother didn't. And it was interesting that it turned out that way because his parents didn't speak Welsh, but my mother's did. Her parents were of that generation where a lot of people chose not to teach their children Welsh. They were both teachers. They thought it would hold her back. Ironically enough, she became a teacher and it held her back that she... Well, it didn't hold her back, but she faced disadvantages because she didn't speak Welsh. They were both determined for my sister and me to, to learn Welsh. After your time in the school, you went on to Oxford, I think, didn't you? Yes, so I read English in St. Hugh's College, and then I stayed on to do a Master's in Jesus College, and that was in Celtic Studies. Because I know that you've got a tremendous interest in literature generally. Oh, yes. And I think you did your Master's, you did a dissertation, didn't you, comparing the poetry of Dylan Thomas and R.S. Thomas? Well, yes, so I was looking at... I'm delighted that you're asking me about this because normally if I start to talk about my master's thesis, people start to shift in their chairs uncomfortably. But it it actually is interesting. Uh, I was looking at the phenomenon of Anglo-Welsh writing. And uh, specifically, I was looking at a Welsh poetic meter called Cynghanedd. And it is something which is very intrinsically linked to the Welsh language. And it has been said that it can't exist outside of Welsh for various reasons. But both R.S. Thomas and Dylan Thomas can, you can look at uh, examples of Kinghanath in their work, and they've written a lot about the phenomenon of, well, being <laughs> singing in chains, or which is Meredith Hopwood's phrase for Kinghanath, this idea of being constrained within the bounds of metre and wanting to express something that they can't. And it came out lots in their letters, in their diaries as well. And I linked that to the phenomenon of of Anglo-Welsh writing because both R.S. Thomas and Dylan Thomas, for different reasons, felt that they were falling between two stools, really. That R.S. Thomas wished that he could write in Welsh, but the inspiration never came to him in Welsh, and that was a cause of great frustration and, and sadness for him, whereas Dylan Thomas did not speak Welsh. And, well, on the one level, he spoke a lot about, he said, land of my fathers, my fathers can keep it. He was very unhappy about the fact that that language had been denied to him. And in his more reflective prose, sometimes he he does recognise the fact that he was closed out of a community. And he said a social grief is going to be natural because of that. So both of the Thomases, then, they were closed out of... Uh, a certain aspect of Welsh life, and it, it came out in this really interesting way in their work. Because the sonorous nature of a lot of Dylan Thomas's poetry is very much like Welsh poetry, isn't it? Yes, it, it definitely is. I mean, God, that wonderful opening sequence of Under Milkwood. And if you think about, actually, 
singing chains, I'm saying that that was Marinette Hopwood's phrase. Of course, she took that from Dylan Thomas, that he says at the end of Fern, oh, is it Fernhill that he says, time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. Some of the sonorous nature of what he says, it, it, it sounds like it should be Welsh. And sometimes the play on consonants that he used, that, that was very similar to Kankhanad. And so ooh, I, I don't accept that he was unaware that he was deliberately using Kinghanev, uh, even though he, he said that he categorically said that he was not it, it, on one occasion. But I think that he must have had a, someone who was so fascinated with words as Stellan Thomas was, he would have been acutely aware of this wealth of tradition that existed in, in, in Welsh language poetry. And I'm sure that he would have been dabbling in that. And, and the... the some of the the rules of King Hannah are so prescriptive that I, I don't see how so many examples of that could exist in his work if they were not there deliberately. I think there's a sense, isn't there, that Anglo-Welsh writing has been undervalued? Oh, it really has. I think that... When was the centenary of Emir? Emir uh, Humphrey. Thank you. His centenary was very recent, uh, recently, a few weeks ago. And Ellen Jones, the Llywydd, had been speaking, because uh, I was in, on that day, I, I had been in Aberystwyth in a meeting with the Welsh Book Council with her. And she had been talking about how when she had first read his novels, that she hadn't ever before encountered people speaking about Wales things and Welsh things in English. And I think that it's fantastic that so much support is given to Welsh language literature. Of course, it, it should be there. But Welsh, Anglo-Welsh literature is another creative expression of the various, the, the very multifaceted identities that we have in this nation. And so I think that it is, it's often overlooked, and I think that is a tremendous shame. You've obviously got a tremendous passion about literature. Why didn't yes. you go on to become an academic? Oh, well, gosh. When I, I remember getting the place to do my master's course, and that was before I did my finals, I felt very, very conflicted because on the one hand I was delighted because I knew that I wanted to, to explore this particular thesis that we've been talking about. But at the same time, I was very aware of the fact that I wanted to do something... I'm being very careful about the way I choose my words here because my sister is an academic. I wanted to do something that was immediate. I wanted to do something... I felt the need to go into the political world. Uh, so when I was doing my master's, I I was very lucky to have been able to arrange a one-day-a-week internship that I did in the Plaid Cymru office in Westminster. And so, and at the end of that time, I was very lucky that I got a job as a researcher in Westminster. So I kind of bridged it in that way. But, but you asked me why I didn't go into academia. It's something that, if I had many different lives, it's something I would love to do, That, uh, but I care so passionately about helping people who need it most in society and giving a voice to people who whose voices are most kind of kind of drowned out that I feel like what I'm doing now is something that I I couldn't not do it's something that I would want to be doing anyway so if I had another life I I, I wish I, I could do that I'm going to embarrass you now because uh, oh God. a few weeks ago <laughs> I bumped into David Wigley as he was coming into the <laughs> oh assembly God, and he was absolutely singing your praises as a researcher because I think effectively you were perhaps doing a lot of work for him and also Elvin uh, Floyd 
at the time when he was um, an MP. Yes. And you were working for them for quite a while. Yes, for five and a half years. Yeah. And I think you were involved, weren't you, in um, looking at things like the stalking laws? Yes. Oh, God, it was a really fascinating time, actually. So it was the stalking laws and also coercive control. So we set up, I say we, so Elvin, someone called Harry Fletcher, and I had been involved in... From the probation uh, Yes, he was was the Assistant General Secretary of NAPO. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We had set up a cross-party independent inquiry, so that's a real mouthful. But basically, we went outside the usual channels because we had recognised that there was a flaw in the law, that stalking wasn't a recognised offence, and that... The Protection from Harassment Act, 1997, was being used to resolve things like if a neighbour was having a dispute because of a hedge growing into their drive or something. So people who were actually being stalked didn't have legislation that had teeth. So I was the clerk, effectively, to this new type of cross-party inquiry that was outside Westminster's usual channels. And we had a cross-party membership. We held evidence sessions and we had evidence from, I don't like the word victims, so I'll say survivors of stalking, and also families of people who'd lost their lives because their stalkers had killed them. It was, that was in the penultimate evidence session that we had the the survivors to come and tell their stories, and you could have heard a pin drop when they were talking, because I think so often in Westminster, things can be lost in the detail of different kind of clauses and things like that and we'd had lots of very very valuable evidence from experts and academics but it was actually hearing about the impact on people's lives that meant things moved very quickly after that and the government uh, decided that they would take forward our recommendations to introduce new stalking laws so we published a report in February 2012 and in March the government said they were going to take forward the recommendations and they brought for I think they passed legislation through the two houses of parliament in 11 days which was legislating at speed really and i think that that was just testament to what can happen when people work cross-party and and something similar happened a few years later with coercive control that involved lots of mps including a little-known backbencher at the time jeremy corbyn because i know that i mean in both instances the impact on individuals can be absolutely horrendous, oh, can't it? Um, absolutely. Oh, God, awful. And that's one of the reasons why when we had drafted draft legislation and then that, that a lot of this was taken forward by the government when they brought forward clauses, those two laws, the coercive control and stalking laws, are defined in terms of the impact that the crimes have on the... Well, I'll use the, the, the word victims in this case, on the victim, rather than... Because they're very pernicious crimes, because they will involve a catalogue of behaviour, and it won't be one incident which on its own will look totally innocuous, but if you look at how it can develop over time, you know, one phone call will seem fine, but if it is a phone call that's happening every day for 50 days, uh, and no one's actually saying anything when you answer the phone, then you see that how the incremental impact that will be debilitating on a person, so... It's not something certainly which has happened before. I think it was probably quite a new thing that the crime was defined in terms of the impact it would have, that it would cause serious alarm or distress to the victim and that a reasonable person would expect that to happen. Now, I think that was a really pioneering thing to to have happened, but it has meant that implementing it has been difficult because if you're going to have really groundbreaking legislation like that, then training of practitioners has to follow. 
it was wonderful the legislation was passed so quickly, but we're still waiting to, to find out whether it's actually working in practice. Because it's important to understand the reasons why people engage in such behaviour. What sort of observations do you have about that element of it? Certainly if we look at stalking, I think one of the ways in which modern life makes this even more of a pernicious issue is how social media will mean that people will hide behind this apparent cloak of anonymity and you can have these pseudonyms online and you can target abuse at people uh, without the person actually being able to prove what's very difficult to prove that that person is isn't just this egg on twitter you know they don't, they don't have a or they'll just have a, a name that has nothing to do with their own name and that's something which actually really worries me a lot how modern society i feel like we haven't caught up with the extra obligations that are on us as citizens in order to interact in a civil way online. And I think that that makes things like stalking uh, even more of an issue because people, you can just get at people all the time. You don't have to physically be there to make your threatening presence known to them. But what is it about the psychological makeup of these people that develops an obsession with it's usually women, isn't it? I think 80% of victims of stalking are women in the UK. Oh, gosh, I, I wish I could uh, understand that. I think that, I think in all instances uh, of kind of serious stalking behaviour like this, then the perpetrator would have to have something quite seriously wrong with them that they cannot understand. Either they can't understand what the, uh, the, the impact that the, the abuse will have, or they will be incredibly vindictive and... Uh, don't care and they want to have that impact. So I think that psychologically what's going on is that sometimes people have been rebuffed and uh, they can't deal with that. Do you know what? I think that there are hundreds of different reasons why someone would uh, engage in this behaviour and one of the (laughs) ills of society is almost that through Disney we have encouraged (laughs) particularly men we've encouraged men to believe that if the woman says no you just need to get a better way of asking her oh you need to keep asking you need to pursue it and then at the end of the day wonderful you'll get the girl and and you'll see this kind of trope that appears in different hollywood films in lots of disney cartoons and and so that there is this idea that if you pursue a woman that, that, that no doesn't always mean no, that maybe eventually she will give in. And I think that's really worrying. It's really worrying. And you'll even have jokes about stalking on Hallmark cards. Uh, yeah, I think that, that there's one that had actually been given to us in evidence in 2012 when it was just, it said, stalking fun for all the family. And just, you wouldn't use that same phrase if you were talking about rape. The debilitating impact that stalking can sometimes have in very extreme cases can, you know, it's been described as mental rape, which I know sounds very sensationalistic, but but it's a, it was a survivor of stalking who used that phrase. So at a time when now Parliament is in a, shall we say, sclerotic state, not apparently <laughs> achieving anything, God. it's worthwhile to remember that there are positive things that Parliament can do or that any legislature can do in terms of trying to address very serious issues and coming up with at least, if not the solution, at least some kind of legislative framework in which 
those who are causing problems can be taken to task. Absolutely, and that you, it is possible to work cross-party and to achieve things which, oh God, doesn't seem to be happening very much in Westminster at the moment, certainly not with the two main parties, but there I am getting party political. <laughs> getting party political? What was it that drew you to Plaid Cymru in the first place? Were your parents involved in Plaid? My father was. So my father had been involved in the 1968 by-election in Philly. And he's been a supporter of Plaid for, for many years. My mother is a supporter, but she, she isn't as politically active as, as my father. And I think the thing which probably got me interested in Plaid, sounds a little morbid, was going to actually two funerals. One was Phil uh, Williams's funeral in 2003, mm-hmm. and the second was Squinford's funeral in 2005. And that was right before I was going off to university. And at the end of the funeral, everyone had gone outside to watch the car kind of pulling away and someone just started singing the national anthem and then everyone joined in and just this gosh I don't know how you say it in English but there's ing this kind of tension that you get sometimes when you think oh god this moment is really significant I still remember it and I still like almost you get a shiver down your, your whole body and I remember thinking oh I'm going away to university but there's there's a Welsh line of poetry do I'm god keep me then I cannot escape this. So how old were you when you decided that you wanted to be a politician? Oh, I hadn't... Well, when I was working in Westminster, I remember Elvin and a number of the MPs actually telling me that I should think about it, but I hadn't considered it before 2015. Um, Well, I hadn't considered doing it in an immediate sense then. I'd always thought it would maybe be something that I would like to do after having other experience in the third sector of, of, of helping uh, people in society in other ways. and But then uh, an opportunity came up in 2015 to stand on the regional list, and I was delighted to take it. And oh dear, 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 I mean, people listening will be very aware of the horribly tragic circumstances where I came into into this job and obviously I never would have wanted it to happen in these circumstances it's it, it, it's yeah it's it's more sad than could be you can't find words for it but but I in spite of that I'm I'm I'm, I'm delighted to be doing the job and I I know how much I owe to Stefan I think we all do because you were obviously his running mate in a sense yes, weren't you back yes. in 2016 and how long have you known him for? Oh, years, because while I was working in Westminster for Plaid, he was working, uh, well, he was certainly involved with Plaid in and around the Assembly. Uh, oh, I'd known him for a long, long, long time. And in 2016, I think that was the first time that we had spent long periods of time. Basically, we were together almost every single day <laughs> for, for, for six weeks and going around and canvassing and dropping leaflets and... I got to know him very well then, and, oh, we got on very well, very well. I used to bump into him in Tesco in Estradmanach as well <laughs> before that, so I still find it utterly bizarre and terribly sad that he's not here. Yes, I mean, one can't imagine any more tragic circumstances in which somebody becomes a full-time mm. politician. At the time when it happened... And it was clear that you would be taking his place. How did you cope with the realisation that you had, as it were, big shoes to fill? To be honest, when it first happened, I felt 
tremendous guilt, <laughs> which I know he wouldn't have wanted me to feel, and there was nothing rational in that, but emotions aren't always rational, are they? And it was the morning after my name had been announced that I'd been returned that uh, I received a message on, on Facebook. I know you can send people messages if, if, even if you're not if you don't know a person, and I received a message, and it was from Stefan's mother, and it was basically, we'd never met, but sending me love from her and all of the family, and saying how much they wanted to support me and wish me well, and the fact that his family and so many of his friends were so, they went out of their way to be supportive, they weren't just kind of you know going through the, oh my god, they were wonderful, and they still are very supportive, that made me even more determined. Well, it, it kind of gave me wind beneath my wings then. Um, I'm thinking of the Bette Midler song now. But um, <laughs> it, it made me feel that I had support and that that was really... That, that, that I, I don't know. I think it would have been very, very difficult without that. I'm always still very, very aware of the incredibly big shoes and I would I don't want to fill Stefan's shoes because I would never want to replace him uh, and I think the best that I can do will be to be an advocate for the people of South Wales East and to do the best job I can and to try my best to to make sure that people always remember him and I, I think that, uh, that there's no danger um, that, that they will definitely remember him we all will. Now, you've joined uh, the Assembly at uh, a fascinating, turbulent time in Welsh politics. (laughs) And uh, it's quite unprecedented, isn't it, what's going on at the moment in terms of polling, in terms of what appears to be quite a realistic possibility that Plaid Cymru could actually take part in government or lead a government in two years' time. What do you think has brought that situation about? Oh, I think there are lots of different factors. I think that if we forget for a moment about Brexit, uh, we can't ignore that. But I think that that's one of uh, the factors. I think that independently of that, if we look at different opinion polls and the the lacklustre support that people feel for the Labour Party in Wales, I think that increasingly people feel frustrated that it is the same party that has led governments throughout the entire history of this legislature. I mean, I don't think that's a healthy thing for democracy. I don't think that's a healthy thing for the Labour Party. Uh, So I think that people in part are realising that we need change. And I think that Plaid Cymru have been very effective in putting forward Uh, a very positive agenda uh, and in showing how we would actually do things better. Now, I think that that happens, that would be happening anyway, uh, but (laughs) we can't ignore the absolute chaos that's happening in Westminster with Brexit. I think that it shows us that that system is fundamentally broken. Um, I don't see how we can come back from this. I don't see how we can come back to the two-party state that we've had on a Westminster level for so long. Uh, I, I think that people are voicing frustration, and at the moment, it's this really interesting time in Welsh politics, isn't it? Because at the moment, that is having almost 
different people are coming to different conclusions about that. And I think that uh, because of this incredibly divisive referendum that happened a few years ago, we are seeing people falling along those fault lines, that, that people who really, um, the, the idea of take back control resonated with them for lots of reasons that we could go into, and who feel that they want to express their frustration. Some people want to leave the European Union, but I would say that there are lots of very complicated things going on with, with, with that. Some people are expressing support for the Brexit party, but equally lots of people are starting to really see that independence is no longer this idea that, oh, you know, it, it is being laughed at as it would have been. It's now a mainstream idea. We had a march um, a couple of weekends ago with 3,000 people so were on the streets of the capital and it was a positive. It wasn't a march against anything. It was a march showing positive feeling for wanting to do something. And I think, I think that's a really exciting thing. And yet, if you look at the history of Plaid Cymru, the party was founded in 1925. Mm. It took 41 years for you to get your first MP. It took another 41 years for you to get into government. This is all slow-mo politics. Whereas you've got a situation where the Brexit party has recently had two MEPs elected mm. to the European Parliament little more than a month after the party was registered. So it is a British nationalist, or in fact one could argue English nationalist party. I, I would say it was English nationalist. It's English nationalist party. So how is it possible for it to take so long for Plaid Cymru to get anywhere mm. when a party whose roots are in England, the country next door, is able to shoot to the top of the polls within a matter of weeks. Well, well I mean, oh, there are lots of things going on here, aren't there? I mean, for one thing, I, I, I'm not even sure if we... I know we, we have to probably refer to it as a party, but it's not a party as we've known it before. And, and you say has its roots. I don't think it has many roots. So I think, I think this is about how the Brexit phenomena is a very... Uh, I don't know if we've seen anything like it before. And I think that if we if we look at that first, at the rise of the Brexit party, I think that, again, this has come out of very, very turbulent, very specific circumstances that came about in this really divisive referendum where lots of factors were at play, you know, certain sections of the media stoking up hatred, and, you know, lots of people on social media, certain companies... Um, uh, on social media targeting people to stir up hatred and to really, I would say, manipulate people and look at the fact that, you know, for generations in the valleys where I'm from, there has been this historic lack of investment uh, or historical lack of investment in our industries, in our communities, in our towns, and people feel that they've been left behind. And I can completely understand in lots of cases why people would feel that way. But I really think that the the Brexit vote gave people an opportunity to voice their frustration. And yeah, and, and for people who felt that, you know what, things can't get any worse than they are now, why would you think that you were being lied to? You know, I think that they were fundamental, you know, quite legal questions about how the referendum was conducted. So when we look at how divisive that was and how people have been given a message that 
actually, if we were to leave, that this idea of Brexit, it's become a talisman. It's become, it's become more than about just the European Union. It's become about whether people trust politics, whether people like the status quo. I think it's, it's a really worrying, in many ways, very ugly phenomenon. But and and so the the Brexit party doesn't have roots. But I think that the roots that they have kind of almost manipulated, if we can mix metaphors in that way, are very complicated. Now, with the independence uh, movement with Plaid Cymru, that is an utterly, utterly different phenomenon because it has roots in Welsh society. It is an incremental change that we've been calling for for many years, uh, and. What we want to do is we want to actually redistribute wealth to set up an, a new way of governing based on fairness, based on equality. And we want to do this in a democratic way that happens with the people in a far more honest way. I think that, yes, it, it's taken time for us to get to where we are, but we have won people over with rational arguments with actually talking to people and bringing them with us. I think that that will stand the test of time. I oh, I really hope that I'm right in saying that I think that the Brexit phenomenon, that because of all of the nefarious, awful things that we're reading about, about how they're funded, that is going to come crashing down. And I'm very worried about where it will leave people who have been sold lies. Now, the uh, democracy has to be with the people. It can't be manipulating people. It has to be bringing people along in a movement. And I think that is something which is definitely go happening already in Wales with with people surging uh, in support for independence. But inevitably, Brexit clouds so much of what's going on. And I think at the end of what, whatever happens with Brexit, we are going to need to fundamentally look at how we talk to people in society that we don't agree with. I think we need to have citizens' assemblies, we need to have town hall meetings, we need to start re-engaging with people on this other side of the divide. I think we, we can build up from this, and I'm excited to see what can be built. You say there's a surge in support for independence, but if we look at polls, we're still just talking about, what, 10 to 12%, something oh, like that? I think that there have been some polls that have been as much as 26% support for independence. And and if you look at where we're coming from, that is, I would say, to surge, certainly in support. And the march that had happened a few weekends ago, that was organised at relatively short notice, and it's the largest march of, of its kind that we've seen. And, well, certainly, and again... It was unique because it, what, people weren't marching in protest. They weren't uh, expressing anger. They were marching because they wanted to be part of a movement for positive change. Now, that's something which, once it kind of grips you, I don't think it will leave you. And we're go I think that it's something which is going to bring people along with us. But there remain a lot of people who... Even setting to one side any kind of emotional, imperial, nostalgia-type feelings for the British Empire, which no longer exists, mm. it has to be said that that is still a phenomenon, which is a oh, real yeah. phenomenon. Yeah. Setting all that aside, there would remain a lot of people who, even looking at the matter objectively or as objectively and dispassionately as they can, would say can Wales really afford it? And they look at the figures that have been 
uh, quoted in terms of the potential deficit that would happen if Wales were made independent. How do you cut through? Now, independence would be something that we would want to happen incrementally, in a way that is very different from Brexiteers who want to kind of, especially people who want a, a no-deal Brexit to sever all ties uh, along world trade organisation rules. Uh, we are very aware of the very porous border between Wales and England, so we would want, financially, we would want independence to take root incrementally. With independence... This, again, is, is a positive movement that we would want to, to take root over time. And if we look at the fact that what the alternative is, if, if we're not going... I think at the moment we're at this kind of crucial juncture point in politics that if we stay on this same path, if we stay with Westminster and the, the deliberately negligent policies like universal credit, like austerity, that we've seen unleashed on our communities for generations, if we choose to stay with that, n- things aren't going to just stay the same. They're going to continue getting worse. We would do better as our nation if we had the levers of power ourselves. Yes, it will take time, but there are smaller nations on this planet that do just fine. Are you convinced that Wales will be independent? And if so, how soon? I'm, I am convinced that we will be independent. I think that we'll be independent, gosh, far more quickly than many of us have did to dream of for a long time because, partly because of this chaotic, uh, this chaotic situation in Westminster, I, God, certainly, and I, I, I would have said before, certainly in my lifetime, but, you know, I, I think we could be looking at a much, a much sooner, I won't put a figure on it, Martin, but... <laughs> well, your leader is um, putting the figure of 2030 on it. Well, I, 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 stranger things have happened. I think that, you know, with everything that is actually going on in Westminster, that system is broken. Maybe. Tell it true. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. We'll be back for more next week.